This episode of the Digiday podcast is sponsored by Kiwi. If you're a publisher, you should know Kiwi. Publishers like the New York Times, Refinery29, National Geographic, Tastemade, and BBC all use Kiwi to distribute content profitably on Facebook. Yes, profitably. To see how, see a demo at kiwi.co slash digiday. That's K-E-Y-W-E-E. Kiwi, making stories relevant and powerful. Three years ago, The Guardian set out to break even after years of losing money. While other publishers put up paywalls or instituted meter models, The Guardian stuck to its open mantra by instead offering a membership program premised on asking readers for donations. This has drawn in 800,000 paying members, putting The Guardian on the path to profitability. I'm Brian Marcy, and this is the Digiday Podcast. This week, we are trying something different. I will not be the one asking the questions. Instead, our UK editor, Jess Davies, will be doing the honors with an interview she conducted live this week at the Guardian's headquarters in London with Guardian CEO David Pemsel. Jess and David talked about what it's taken to cut the losses at The Guardian and turn from an ad-dependent model to one based around reader revenue. One big thing David recognizes is that keeping the website open for all and asking for donations means recurring revenue is not guaranteed. They also discuss the ins and outs of a membership-based business model, the problems of programmatic advertising, and The Guardian's relationship with the duopoly. Hope you enjoy it. So The Guardian has been on a fascinating journey the last couple of years. Uh, you've made some deep changes to your business model uh, to get yourself back onto the path of sustainability. And I think it's sort of fair to say you're coming up into the final sprint of that three-year plan that yep. you, you set months, out. Six months to go. Six months to go. Well, yep. so where are you at? Can you just start by telling us how would you describe now where The Guardian is financially and uh, what's still to be done to hit that target of yep. breaking even? Um, look, I think it's probably worth going back, perhaps, just to sort of set some context about the journey that we have been on, because I suppose it's so easy, isn't it, to say that, you know, I suppose next to corporate giants around the world, we seem to be celebrating and commenting on a business that's just got itself to break even. But the journey to get there has been obviously incredibly tough. If you go back to 2015, uh, June, our forecast then with the realities of the ad market we're forecasting that if we hadn't changed or, or, or done anything, we'd have ended up with a sort of cash outflow of about £100 million. So that was an EBITDA number of 87 and then some cash on top of that. And then when you look at the realities of the ad market and you look at the impact of Google and Facebook with very little diversification in terms of our revenue model, um, that is real serious pause for thought. You have to absolutely get step into... What does it mean to create a sustainable news organisation with that context that you're having to deal with? And we did say, along with lots, I mean, there were four pillars to this strategy. It was around building reader engagement. It was encouraging readers to make a greater contribution without actually knowing what that contribution model was then. Um, Reshaping the business around the realities of the ad market, namely programmatic and reducing costs and creating a bit more agility in the business. And from then, that number went from 87 EBIT to 57 to 38 to 19. 
and at the end of March, our forecast is to get to zero. Now, we're not there yet, and six months is an awful long time in our, in our business with huge amounts of sort of change and disruption still to come. But, you know, Kath Feiner and I, our editor-in-chief, could not be prouder of that progress because, you know, no one knows when you... I can't forecast six months out, let alone saying in three years' time we will do something, but uh, we're most certainly on track to deliver that. And let's talk a bit about the memberships first because that seems to have been sort of one of the biggest changes that you made and you're up to how many can you give the latest count it's over 800,000 yeah so it's so you can break it down broadly into uh, over 800,000 people paying us something across three different buckets of of revenue there are one off contributions which is just over 300,000 uh, there's 230,000 print digital subscribers and then the balance is reoccurring contributors who pay a standard amount of money each month. And um, I think a lot of people at the beginning said that The Guardian essentially got itself into such a state it's got no other solution other than to ask people to help it. Uh, and we took that criticism on board and then ignored it. And what, what essentially really relied upon is the fact that people, particularly in this world that we live in now, where every, you know, there's a huge amount of things going wrong in the world and people require and need strong, independent journalism to such an extent that the number one reason why people contribute is to make it available to people who can't. And that's such a profound point, isn't it, that people believe that they shouldn't, you shouldn't charge or tax people's consumption for the types of things that we write around the world. And um, though I didn't really expect the numbers to be anywhere near the amount that we have today, and when we said of our four-pillar strategy, we will look for ways for, for people to make a greater contribution, I suppose the external commentary at the time was just cut the co costs, put the paywall up, and everything will be fine. And you know, obviously, we had to address our cost base. But they we said that a paywall would be on the table. Kath and I would review it. But ultimately, we wanted to look for alternative ways of or finding a new model. And I talk to people now around the world, and people have defined this contribution model almost as the third way. You're either open and accessible to all, or you have a hard paywall slash sort of freemium. And this contribution model is obviously something that's incredibly unique to us, though we'll come on to people who are trying to replicate it. And um, you yes, <laughs> uh, but, but it, it shows that people have an absolutely vested interest in making sure The Guardian is sustainable. Mm. And it's now over, well, it's, it's taken over ad revenue. So if you combine our print circulation mm. numbers, which obviously individuals buy newspapers, on top of the amount of money coming from our contributions, our subs, uh, and uh, digital subscriptions, we have more money coming from our readers now than from advertising, yes. And what are the factors that you attribute that growth to? Look, I think it's a, it's a couple of things. I, I think it, it is, I think The Guardian has a, you know, has a unique structure. We're, we're owned by a trust. There isn't a proprietor that sits at the top of this business that when we have a good year buys another boat. Uh, there is no shareholders of whom are expecting us to deliver um, a financial contribution. The, the board, the Guardian Media Group board, whom I report to, and the trust's sole purpose is, is to protect the Guardian in perpetuity. We are an editorially-led organisation. And as a result of that, I think when people scratch beneath the surface about why the Guardian exists, I think people have felt absolutely compelled to contribute to this very unique organisation and its unique model. I think if you're part of a conglomerate, which you know, there's no criticism 
of conglomerates. I sometimes wish we had more diversified revenue from different sources. But I think it becomes very difficult, I think, for a reader who's wanting to contribute to something purposeful to be able to do that if it's either a public company, a private equity-backed company, or something that sits within a large uh, corporate structure. So I think that's, I think from our research, and I suppose instinct suggests that's the reason why people feel compelled to contribute. And the other, obviously the most important point, is the quality of our journalism. Whether it's from Windrush or Cambridge, Cambridge Analytica to the Paradise Papers and many, many other stories, I think this, these stories are the stories of our times. Uh, they they um, dissect and reveal a very complex and troubled world, as we know. And as a result of that, when we do do these stories, it's very difficult to forecast what actually happens, what will happen in, as it relates to reader contribution, and you will inevitably see spikes around those stories that absolutely matter. Mm -hmm. Yeah, just on that, how challenging do you see the future growth of that? Um, a lot of talk sometimes around subscriptions, publishers, is that there's an eventual ceiling on how many, willing are, uh, how many people are willing to pay for the content. Do you see that being a challenge in uh, memberships model as well? Or, or Look, I think look, trying to, to find the, um, the economic model that sustains the type of journalism that we want to do, particularly uh, uh, deep investigative journalism, you know, trying to find economic business models for that right now is extremely tough. And I always say of our reach and our influence in the world, 160 million browsers, a billion page impressions, every month, you know, huge in the States, big America, two thirds of our traffic outside the UK. That's all driven by the quality of our journalism and validates the quality of our journalism. However, it's not a validation of our business model or indeed the business models that exist right now as it relates to news. And so I don't, I, I don't think we'd ever be complacent to say that we can see with certainty that readers will continue to contribute I think that would be arrogant and it would be complacent for us to think that way. But at the moment, the numbers are absolutely going in the right direction. And there is a direct correlation between the quality of what we write and people's propensity to contribute. So we, at last, have a relationship between the two. There's, we've never needed justification for having the amount of journalists that we have. But there is an absolute correlation between our output and people's propensity to contribute. And so... Long may that continue. I think once we get to break even, you know, it's only six months out, uh, our new strategy will start on the 1st of April from next year. Mm -hmm. And so obviously we are now trying to work out and start to model, you know, what does one have to believe to continue this fantastic growth? It's not easy, um, but will certainly depend on us making sure that we invest in journalism because that's what drives everything. Well, I'll come back to that a little later yeah, about I'm sure. uh, next next steps. Um, what about uh, Google? It's been quite open about how it plans to, to help, uh, or is trying to help publishers with subscriptions. Um, I remember you had a, a chat with, uh, with Matt Britton at Adweek Europe yep. in March, and he um, conveyed that they'd be trying to do more and more there. Has that helped at all? Has there been good progress there? Look, I, I think there has. And, you know, I have to, the, the way in which the business is structured, you know, there is our editorial led by Kath and she will independently judge those platforms, good and bad. And then I obviously have to make the judgment and assessment about how they'll contribute to our commercial strategy. Um, obviously, we bundle up all of those platforms into one and we describe them as the duopoly and Google and Facebook. They're, but we all know they are very, very different organizations. 
Uh, and so if you come to Google, first of all, I, I have publicly said I believe we have a very good and deep strategic relationship with Google. That will never mean that there will be any editorial favour. We know that. But actually, I have found our, our meetings and the strategic prioritisation between what we need and what Google are prepared to provide uh, very linked and very constructive. And that goes from conversations with Sundar directly, as it will with their tech departments as it relates to data. And so far, um, I would say that their, their contribution to what we're trying to achieve has been positive. It will always be measured against um, the dominance they have within the ad market. It will always be uh, benchmarked about, you know, are they ultimately hoovering up so much money that you know s some incremental help over here on app development is basically a drop in the ocean compared to no revenue now going to people who will produce some of the best journalism in the world. But in the end, the pragmatism says to me that they are they are contributing positively. Uh, not that I. Feel, there's no ill on my part on any other news organisations in the world and I think it's good that they're generically supporting the ecosystem for news. I care about The Guardian and will always strive to ensure that we get proprietary support for us rather than just everybody else. That's my job. We'll be back after this quick break. With so many changes to Facebook, distributing your content cost-effectively is more important than ever. Kiwi helps hundreds of publishers like New York Magazine, Business Insider, Condé Nast, U.S. News, and The Guardian do just that. Whether you're looking to drive more traffic, increase video viewership, drive subscriptions, or sell products online, Kiwi can help you find and target the audiences that matter most at the best price. Visit kiwi.co slash digiday to see a demo. That's K-E-Y-W-E-E. -E. Kiwi, making stories relevant and powerful. Thank you for your support, Kiwi. Check them out. Now back to the episode. Just to go back to the US, um, obviously there's been some uh, deep changes there too, but subscriptions or well, memberships have been going well there as well. Um, what do you see the growth opportunities in the US now that the business there has stabilised? Yeah, look, the States and Australia are now making a positive financial contribution after, particularly in America, sort of, you know, a number of years of, of big investment. We did, um, 18 months or so ago, have to, you know, what I described as a course correction. And that was namely just because the ad market was just not doing what we needed it to do. It certainly couldn't support the, 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 um, the operation that we had there. Now um, we have two fantastic leaders. We have Evelyn Webster, who came from Time, who's our chief executive there. And John Mulholland, who used to be the editor of The Observer, as our editor-in-chief. And between the two of them, they have both got it back to something that is financially sound. And now we are getting much, much clearer about the geographies and how the different states differ as it relates to the type of journalism that we write. And we're getting much smarter and analysing our data about people's propensity to contribute. Uh, NPR and other models have been prevalent in the US for an awful long time. And therefore, there is almost a cultural, um, there's an already cultural landscape of people prepared to support journalism, NPR being the classic model. And so actually, I think now, the, my appetite and Kath's appetite, I think, to focus in America, be a bit more strategic, not just sort of have huge, huge numbers of people in New York, but be, re be really considerate about where the readership is uh, and people's propensity to contribute will mean that America in the next strategy will, will play a fundamental part. 
What are the differences there between people's propensity to buy in the US compared to here? Are there any interesting... Yeah, the cultural Sorry. dynamics are, it tends to be one-off contributions there. Um, so what you have to be very careful there is, is, is all in the UX, creating as minimal friction as possible. So it, it tends to be a, an article level. If you do something very you know, profound and deep around whether it be gun crime or... Um, I don't think Trump is going to cut through at the moment, but the, the impact of right. Trump rather than Trump himself right. obviously create that that feeling that people want to support the journalism that brings those stories to life. And so the difference between the US and the UK, for example, it tends to be more one-off contributions, tend to be led on the article level, where the relationship, I suppose, given the size of that country, is thinner than the, the relationship that people have in the UK. Mm-hmm. So we have more people on reoccurring contribution here, like standing order, and more one-off in the US. Mm-hmm. But given the size of the market, when there is a spike of one-off contributions around a story, it's huge. Right, so one-off is fine for now. <laughs> yes, no, we're absolutely yeah. fine now. Okay. Um, just to go on a little bit to the, the advertising side of things, how would you describe um, the current state of digital advertising? I know you've spoken in the past about um, you know, the lack of transparency and some parts of the, the programmatic model being uh, opaque. How would you describe the current um, setup? Look, I, th- I think when uh, people in this room would have attested to this, I think that we, that, look, two years ago there was the threat of programmatic. I mm-hmm. think it was described as a threat. All I could see is basically machine-to-machine trading, very little consideration for context, no real yield improvement based on quality. Now that was then. Whereas now, I think we have to accept that programmatic, the good side of programmatic is about efficiency. Mm-hmm. And it's about being able to create an efficient buying environment where one, a client can spend money, it can be deployed against uh, the right target. And that real-time bidding and the targeting, if it's done in the right way, is an obvious way the whole world will go. And I think we're all accepting of that. The problem being is that there is genuine fraud in the system. Uh, there is a genuine lack of, of transparency about where money goes. Uh, we have run our own tests and to our horror have found that we have not received the money that we thought we were owed. And we've been very open, very, very open about that. Uh, basically saying that that is just unacceptable. Everything The Guardian does funds its journalism. And to think that we have there has been programmatic systems across our sites that have essentially meant there's been a misdirection of that revenue to other sources as opposed to us to fund our journalism, I frankly think is outrageous, and we've been very vocal on that. I have found clients increasingly in the last six to 12 months putting a lot more interest into not just the price. And you know, brand safety, where, where brand messages are going, um, context now is beginning to be recognized within the programmatic space. And actually, I think we should all embrace that. However, I have also been in agencies where people have been a bit more open about what constitutes the type of digital behavior that attracts more revenue over one site than another. And the problem is there are still anomalies in the system, you know, ad load, ad speed, ad density, now, I think, you know, I could treble the amount of ads on a website. We could just focus on ad load. I don't think those two things are proof points for quality. And so I still think there is discrepancy. There's still contradictions in the system. 
But I do believe, given that at the end, it's all going to be programmatic one day, there'll be a self-cleansing process anyway to make sure that some of this stuff improves. But I think all clients, you know, at the end, all of this money starts with a client trying to achieve a strategic aim. Mm. And if that money is being deployed in places they don't understand, or in places they would never support, uh, or it's being basically siphoned off into places they don't understand, I think it should start with a client. We then work with agencies and we try and make it as transparent as possible. Mm. Speaking of siphoning off, I wondered if you could um, give us an update on um, your case with Rubicon Project because that was something that, again, when you were taking a very strong stand, yeah. um, that was seen as, you know, you were the one player that was sort of willing to, to go out publicly and talk about that. Is there anything that you can uh, tell us as an no, update I'm, about that? I sort of wish I could actually, but it's yeah. a case and therefore it's yes. confidential. Um, but, it, but at least people are aware of our stance and mm -hmm. how, how far we were prepared to take it. Mm -hmm. Given our position is not one of, uh, the, the argument is not based on shareholder return. It's about our, our revenue going to the thing that we do, which is journalism. Mm -hmm. If you're hooked on this conversation and wish you were there, you could be for our next one. How, you may ask. Subscribe to Digiday Plus. That is our premium membership program for people in media, marketing, tech, even investors to get a leg up. Here's how it works. Digiday Plus members get access to exclusive content each day. They also get invites to our member events like this live podcast, early access to this podcast, and our top story of the day, exclusive research we do on top industry trends and much more. Please visit digiday.com and you will see the plus tab. Digiday Plus membership is $395 a year, but if you use podcast at checkout, you'll get 20% off. That is podcast. Please do check it out. Promise you it's worth it. Now back to the episode. Just also on the brand safety, um, obviously that's been a big theme uh, for advertisers for like the last, feels like, couple of years. It's, it's sort of been dialed up. Um, do you feel like uh, that's also made it harder for publishers, um, given hard news has always been something that's been challenging um, over, say, you know, life, sort of lifestyle, entertainment yeah. kind of news? Do you feel more advertisers are scared off by that because of this, um, this brand safety? Fear or yeah, look, I think it's a good question, and when you when you're left to personal judgment about you know what is content that could potentially upset people versus what is terrorism and what is some of the other horrors that people will find on the web, um, there are some clients, I suppose, and we must respect that, who are worried about placing advertising against some of the stories of our times. Um, you know, I used to be a marketeer. Uh, and spend a lot of time thinking about how you build brands. And I, th I think at the time, I didn't worry about approximation to good quality news. I think that's a place where brands clearly can grow and build reputation for their proximity to quality. Obviously, however, when it's next to stuff that is horrendous and dark and sinister, then we've just got to put the mechanisms to weed that out. Um, it is complex. Uh, obviously, you know, I've been very vocal about, as most publishers have or most media owners as clients have against the platforms, but it is very difficult. And armies and armies of people have been used to um, try and work this through. I think the, those platforms should have worked far faster, but I think they are now trying to do their best. But it's very, very difficult. Mm. Just talking again about the, the ad fraud 
problem mm. still, um, the lack of transparency. Do you feel, I have to bring it up, but do you feel uh, that GDPR will make much of a difference there, cleaning things up? Um, it's always an area I'm interested in, but I'd love to hear your take. Look, I think there will be people in this room and people who listen to it have been through the GDPR journey for the last few months. Yeah, um, look, I, I think I, I had a collective growth. Yeah, look, time. look, I, I think that there's a there's a couple. I think there's a couple of lenses. So, as a CEO of the Guardian Media Group, having a sort of an intervention and a policy to ensure that our systems and our processes can stack up to scrutiny, as it relates to how we manage uh, and care for our readers data our readers data I think that's a good thing mm -hmm. so you write that paragraph and I think you make a judgment that um, I would I don't mind that almost third party deep an analytical view about whether our systems are up for it up fit for purpose and we've been through a very strategic process that we're a relatively small company we have an audit committee and we've been through the very painful process of it of basically going through every single data set um, for both our uh, employees uh, and our readers. So that's sort of the corporate position. Then you start getting down to, you know, how this will play out. And obviously there's some commentary to say that GDPR will actually empower Google and Facebook further rather than lessen it. And it, <laughs> and it. And look, this originated yeah. from, from Germany uh, in response to the concern over aggregation of data it was put to Europe and that policy then became policy. And so I suppose it's, you know, you, you can go full circle to say if it, was, if it was about containing them, it's not achieved that. If it's about giving everyone in this room more confidence about how we manage data, it has achieved that. Uh, now going forward, I suppose, you know, when the button was switched and we suddenly wait to see all where the pipes are all connected up, particularly for programmatic, uh, we didn't see any, you know, there was no drama. Going forward, I suppose now we have to try and think about how will it impact our advances in AI? Do we really understand, so you know, AI is something that very few people in this room will be able to control in terms of how it's going to advance. And we've just got to be careful that there are good sides around um, AI and how we will process data. And we just have to be careful that GDPR does not slow that, the good parts of the advancement of data processing. What's your personal take on whether Google and Facebook benefit from GDPR or not? Um, look, I, I think, look, let's take Google in the first instance. In the end, in the way in which they are basically totally embedded into the ad system, there is no ad market without Google. And therefore, if one believes that the data is ultimately the trading currency of those platforms of which Google almost totally own, then you've got to imagine, though I can't give you a data point, they have benefited from it. Mm -hmm. um, I think that Facebook is different, is that to hold up the GDPR policies and data governance when you take into consideration Cambridge Analytica, I think they've got a lot more problems than just worrying about GDPR. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, how would you describe your, your current relationship with, with Facebook? I know you said previously publicly that it's been difficult and different from your relationship with Google. How has that changed? Has it changed for the better or changed for the worse or stayed the same? Well, look, I think um, if you sit across the table from Facebook and you try to find strategic alignment where the, 
where you look to say, let's okay, let's concentrate on the things where we do agree. Currently, we don't have many. Mm -hmm. By that, I think we probably mean zero. Okay, um, just going to ask you, what are the things you agree? And on? so it's really difficult yeah. and it's really frustrating. Mm. Uh, we came out of instant articles because our whole strategy is about how do you convert the anonymous reach of this you know, incredible organization into a known audience and understand that data more so we can drive reader contribution. If you go into instant articles and you have no access to data, you can't participate in any meaningful way in terms of uh, advertising um, revenue. Uh, there's no real safeguards around quality. The algorithm says virality over quality, you're slightly stumped you've got a very short meeting. And so, and I find that really frustrating. You know, I, I, you know, we do, we are in dialogue at the top of that organization down about the things that matter to us and without getting too ahead of ourselves, what, what matters to society. And trying to find those connection points has been really, really difficult. What do you think the blockage is there? Well, I think it comes down to that we're just in different businesses. Mm -hmm. You know, one is, is, is you know, it is a hugely successful organisation of which there are, you know, thousands of incredibly talented people that have taken an idea that started off on a campus in a university to the, be the biggest social network arguably we'll ever see. But that doesn't relate to the provision of strong, independent, quality journalism. Those two things currently don't align. And um, I find that frustrating. And I'm, I remain incredibly open-minded to try and find ways to, to pull those things together. Mm -hmm. um, the virality of our journalism is part of their ecosystem, but they're not dependent on it. Mm -hmm. I was talking with someone just earlier about how nuanced everyone's, uh, every publisher's subscription strategy is, uh, depending on the, the publisher. And uh, I wondered if you thought that um, yours could be a successful blueprint for other publishers to follow. We've already seen BuzzFeed sort of take up a membership contribution. I just wondered what your thoughts were on that. Um, yeah, I mean, look, BuzzFeed, again, an organisation of whom um, I respect. I think what Jonah has done is, 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 is incredible, incredible, and he's done a great job as has that team. I was surprised when I saw that uh, new announcement. And I'm... I, th I think they do do good, there is some good journalism that sits within, within BuzzFeed. But I think for me the jury's out whether people are prepared to go as far as they do with us in the supporting of it. It's a very different corporate entity, it's funded in a very different way. And actually I think that the reason why we have these numbers, as I said earlier, is because of the construct of this organisation, the ownership model and our ruthless independence and every single person in this building, whether it be how we manage our endowments, whether it sits in the board or our trust or all of our employees across the world, it's to support journalism. And I think that translates into our contributors and how people feel about this company. If you are, as I said earlier, a public company and say, um, we'd like you to contribute because we're kind of out of ideas, I think you can't underestimate the reader and you must never take them for granted. So it's not to say that we are globally unique, but I do think our structure and our, our corporate governance suggests that it might be a bigger contributor to us than other people. Mm -hmm. So what's on your radar for the next, um, well firstly for the next 
six months, but also can you give us a bit of a flavour as to what you're thinking about um, once that deadline for your three-year plan expires yeah. and you've broken even? Yes. Um, look, I think what sort of in the year, and we announced this uh, recently, you know, we're going to launch our daily podcast. Mm-hmm. We're incredibly excited by that. Um, we, we, we have been doing podcasts for four years, but the idea of trying to just create a moment during the day, every single day, not to just to add to the to the ferocity of breaking news, but to just a moment, create a moment of reflection and pause, we're really excited by. Um, we continue to add further advancements to our app and more functionality. We've now got the Discover button, which allows people just to spend a bit more time reflecting on what we write rather than just churning it through it so quickly, which is driving a huge number of paid-for app downloads as well. So it's we're not just uh, it's not just about cost. You know, this is all really about how do we continue to give value to our readers because we know the quality of the journalism combines with the way in which we package it up across different platforms is what drives either advertising revenue or reader contribution. And through those and a management of costs, um, we'll get to our break-even number. Now, the difference between where we were in 2015, which, let's be honest, was pretty scary, um, we can now, the strategic um, process between now and when we start the next strategy in April is slightly calmer. Uh, a, b- a bit more, um, there's a lot more analysis about what are the key drivers that, can, that are driving particularly reader revenue. And we will start to look at what the, the relationship between our reach around the world and p- people's propensity to contribute. Because we now have a much more diversified revenue model. The days of let's just build an audience in America <coughs> and then hope the advertising model will fund it is over. But thinking about the reader first, understanding the relationship between building reach, building regularity, and understanding propensity to contribute allows us to do some deep analysis about where we might be in the world and grow our reach as long as as long as it translates to relationships and ultimately some kind of direct relationship with our reader. Advertising is still critical. I still spend time, a huge amount of time, with agencies and clients. And in the main, they really do care about context. Uh, they will almost pay the premium for it. Mm-hmm. And therefore, I'm not going to give up on that argument. I, I genuinely am not. I think it's really important that we keep providing the data and the proof points of why advertising should belong next to the type of journalism that we create. Other things, just very briefly, you know, we did, up, we did set up Guardian Ventures. I mean, it, it is a group. My response, there is the endowment. We do have the Guardian and the Observer, and we do have Guardian Media Group Ventures, which is investing in Series A and seed funding, businesses that we believe will either disrupt us, of which there are many, or potentially accelerate our plan. And we've been investing in the likes of um, a company called Signal Media, which is about AI. We've been investing in Vidzi, which is a SaaS platform for video uh, distribution and creation. And all of these things, we just have to create an ecosystem of financial discipline, but also making sure you retain, you remain deeply curious about what will enhance this business, but also what will disrupt it. And I remain an optimist. To go from where we were before to break even at the end of March, I think there's a huge number of proof points where the world really cares about journalism. 
and we will continue to, to sustain this business as well as be very prudent about what we do within our, our endowment and how we invest to learn. How big a, a role do you think publisher or broadcaster collaborations are going to play um, in securing that? Because it feels like it's still a, a topic that's talked about a lot. Um, there's fewer examples of ones that have really sort of helped um, move the needle on things yeah. like that. But I'd love your take on... Look, I, I read somewhere, and I, I don't know, it seemed new news to me. People are smarter in this room. They've probably seen it. But that competing is expensive and collaboration is cheap. And so I think that one, when addressing the ad market particularly, you invest in the things that are proprietary, that give you that point of difference and will always remain very competitive. But you collaborate around the things that you feel will create either greater efficiency or perhaps make it easier for your clients and agencies to deal with you. Now, one of the benefits of Google and Facebook is it can be a touch of a button, no human interaction. And here we have, particularly in the UK, you know, five maybe more buying points, selling something that a lot of buyers and, and agencies are struggling to deal with because of the efficiencies of digital. And so we've announced recently Ozone, you know, our, our partnership between ourselves, um, Telegraph, uh, News UK, uh, Trinity, Reach have just also joined. Mm -hmm. So you've basically got the majority of the news market now in one place working, about, working out how best to create a unified buying point where we can create efficiencies but also use data to bring to life the value of what we do. It won't stop our competitiveness and our, you know, our fight to make sure that we retain and grow our audiences, but it will answer what any agency head will always say to me, can, it, can you just be easier to deal with? Mm -hmm. And Ozone will be a response to that. Okay, so it's like an option as opposed to... Yeah, it's something we have to do. Look, mm -hmm. and and you know, I think it's a demonstration of of the chief execs that are running these businesses are now prepared to sit around tables and not just fight, mm -hmm. but actually really think strategically how we can add value to clients and agencies. Um, two years ago, you wouldn't have even had us sitting in the same room. Uh, whereas now, you know, the pragmatism about the nature of the market, but we have got something hugely valuable to provide agencies and clients. And it's propelled us to be able to collaborate to make the transaction and the relationship with agencies easier. Mm -hmm. I've been hogging the questions. Um, I must open it up. We've got five or ten minutes, maybe, if David's feeling generous. If you take the Guardian and the Observer out of the equation, which publishers do you perhaps most admire, either through commercial strategy or journalism, in integrity of journalism, I guess? Yeah. Look, I do think, uh, look, the history of the Washington Post uh, and the New York Times, uh, I think are still these huge, and I use the word brand, I think that they are news brands of whom consistently, day in, day out, produce some world-class journalism that can have big impact. Um, there are other news organisations around the world who are doing, I suppose, equally good work, but some of them, to my earlier point, are hidden and are very quiet. And I think you know, to break a story, but only really manage it for um, revenue per user, I think can at times be a contradiction. I admire the Financial Times. I think that their commitment to their paywall uh, has, and the way in which they've kept 
incredibly focused about the type of journalism that they should sort of almost own and how that um, translates into a meaningful sub-base I think is equally impressive. And sometimes they play around with the porous nature of their paywall depending on the size of their stories. But I hold those organisations in, in really high regard. And there's a long tail of fascinating, you know, smaller digital players that I think are coming up and you should always watch them because they always do some great work. But those are the three I admire. Hello, David. Um, do you ever anticipate online journalism being funded wholly without advertising, given the fact that readers are still showing a propensity for ad blocking? Yeah, look, ad blocking is, um, was certainly a thing um, a year or so, maybe two years ago. I remember us writing some pretty aggressive letters to some companies. Talking, start, their start point on ad blocking is we're here to protect the user until you worked out they were essentially companies that were hoovering up people's data under the pretense of protecting the user. So we made that very clear. Um, now, I, I think, look, I think advertising, and I don't want to sort of be apple pie about this, but I do believe that quality matters. And quality is the number one tenant of everything that we do. We'd never compromise our journalism in pursuit of the ad dollar. But what we do do is continue to grow massive audiences who are highly engaged. And I still believe there are conventions without all of this disruption that means that quality brands should ne be next to quality content. And there is enough data at the moment that says that brands will benefit from that, whether it be a direct response to you know, selling a product or whether it be building brand value over time. And so I'm not going to give up on it. I will meet any client or any agency, as will our amazing team, and very passionately bring to life why advertising does belong around and sit next to quality. And ad blocking, I'm not saying it's, it's not as, a, as something that we worry about, but I do believe quality has beaten a lot of the, the original hysteria around ad blocking. I was very taken right at the start when you were talking about uh, how you're an editorially-led organisation, and having watched The Guardian for a number of years, um, I'm very struck by how the partnership with Cath seems to have been a pivotal part of this. And as a commercial leader at another major publishing organisation, I'm really interested to say, or to ask, how important you think that has been in the overall journey, and what other publishers can learn from that? Look, I, 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 and thank you for bringing it up. Uh, I think that, you know, don't, I don't want to, this is not about me or Kath. There is an extraordinary group of people in this organisation, as there are millions of people around the world that have co contributed to our journalism. But you asked the question. Uh, and uh, look, our partnership is incredibly unique. You, you, you don't become or want to be the chief exec of the Guardian Media Group without wanting to partner with the editor-in-chief. That's the job. Uh, and as a result of that, it means that what do we both care about? We care about the sustainability of this organisation. And therefore, we are completely and utterly joined at the hip in terms of ensuring that happens. Do I have any, any influence over what the output of our journalism is? No. Uh, but do I, unfortunately, in every waking hour, pour over our numbers? Yes. Uh, and as a result of that, we have a language which has resulted in this phenomenal success. And whenever people do, I mean, recently it's been, it, it's been flattering and it's been, I've appreciated people's um, positive feedback to me saying what an incredible commercial turnaround 
it would not happen without the partnership with Cathfina. Those these two things are completely symbiotic and related, and one really can't work without the other. Hi, David. Hi. You mentioned your close partnership with Google, uh, and I know the Guardian was a fairly early adopter of AMP or accelerated mobile pages. What are your thoughts on that, given concerns that it might be strengthening Google's part in the duopoly? Well, I think that's look. It's a it's a good question, quite a technical question. Um, I think this is the problem with the sheer scale and machinery of Google is that as soon as something works, because of their scale, it potentially can be monopolistic just by dint of the infrastructure. Any innovation that they come up with, given their success, can eventually be market disrupting and can actually have a negative impact over time. So I think AMP, as it related to um, packaging up the appropriate content and raising the speed of, of, of uh, identification in mobile was absolutely right. I think the problem is, is that like any one of these initiatives, you've just got to look at the unintended consequences of being so vested into that piece of technology. And I use this word unintended consequences a lot because whenever you've got any of those huge tech firms, whether they be data companies, whether it be the duopoly or others, and they come to you with an idea of support or partnership, you do have to just, before you take it, just think just quickly, what is the unintended consequences of this partnership? Which means you tend to be in a constant state of paranoia. Um, but, but I think, but we do have a high bar of those partnerships. And look, we came out of instant articles. We've come out of Apple News. We make some very big judgments about where we should play. But when we do partner, as we did with AMP, or we do look at initiatives with other organisations, it's because we've done the analysis and we believe it's right. Trouble the more successful they become, the more it requires you to just pause and reflect again. David, thank you so much. I'm going to let you off. And thank you all for listening. This show is produced by Aditi Sangal. If you liked our show, please give us a five-star rating and leave a review. This helps the podcast be discovered. We are on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, Spotify, and Anchor.fm. Thank you again for listening.